I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Welcome to the Tennis.com podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Nina Pantic, and our special guest in this episode is Mary Carrillo. She has worked as a tennis commentator and broadcaster for a ton of outlets, including ESPN, Tennis Channel, Amazon, and NBC. She's covered dog shows, she's covered Grand Slam finals, and she's covered the Olympics, including the Winter Olympics and events like marathon swimming. She's done it all. We get to hear her takes on how she got her start in broadcasting, what her best bits of advice are, her favorite stories to tell. We interviewed Mary during the U.S. Open. So let's jump right into our chat with Mary Carrillo. All right, Mary Carrillo, welcome to the Tennis.com podcast. Pleasure to be here, Nina. You are in the midst of the U.S. Open. We're not going to talk about the U.S. Open, but how crazy is life for you in a slam like this? It's pretty busy because uh, I'm working for Tennis Channel uh, and I'm also working for Amazon Prime UK. So it's, it's a lot of tennis, I got to say. And this is a busy major for me anywhere because I, anyway, because I grew up about 15 minutes away from here in Douglaston, Queens. And so my Aunt Rose, my cousin Conchette, like everyone thinks I have tickets. <laughs> I can totally relate to that. <laughs> so it's busy, but it's, I, I, I mean, I love this tournament, obviously. It's, it's a lot of fun. And there have been some remarkable storylines that have kept things hopping around here. And, and I like coming home. How does this week and Grand Slams in terms of your work compare to other weeks? Are you always on like this? How, how crazy is your life? My life is, <laughs> it's, I'd say it's pretty busy. I mean, I, I get to cover, I work for Tennis Channel. I also, uh, as I said, I'm doing some work for Amazon Prime. I also work for NBC and I work for HBO. So I'm like I, the morning after this U.S. Open ends, I go out to Stanford, Connecticut to shoot stand-ups for an Olympic show that I'm working on for Tokyo next year. So yeah, it's kind of, it's a little busy, but I like that. I like working. I, I like feeling alive and, and, uh, and I love sports, not just tennis. So, um, and it, it's good for someone like me to be busy. You don't want me to be idle, Nina. I'm telling you, it's not good. It, <laughs> you can ask anyone I work with. How do you wear so many different hats and so many different companies? Do they come after you? Do you seek out them? I mean, this sounds like you have your hand in a lot of different networks and different sports. Even. I, I've got a new gig. Uh, for the first time uh, this December, I'm doing the Yukonuba Dog Show for Animal Planet. It'll air on New Year's Day. I love dog shows. I For NBC, I, I started out doing the Westminster Dog Show, and then we lost that We lost that. Uh, to to Fox Networks, but I still do the National Dog Show and the Beverly Hills Dog Show. And I have to tell you, Nina, it's one of my favorite events of the calendar year. I love dogs. I've got three of them. They're all morons, but the ones that I get to talk to, talk about at the dog shows, it's magnificent. They're beautiful. They're kind. They lick you. I mean, it's, it's a different sporting experience from anything else I cover. How do you interview the dogs? Yeah, you usually talk, you, you spend more time with their owners and, and trainers. But I mean, if I could talk to the, if I could talk to those animals, I would. 
And they're just, it's, how do I, I mean, I, at, at this point, I mean, I've been, I've been working in TV for about 40 years now. I like doing, I like covering things that I love, like tennis, like the Olympics, like dogs. I like working with people that I admire and respect and get along with it. The people I work with at Tennis Channel have become, you know, some of my best friends. We got a good ball club and, and I love, you know, it's, it's kind of a pleasure uh, to spend a lot of time doing what you love. You're kind of synonymous with tennis, though. Does having the dog shows and the Olympics and all that balance you out? Because tennis every day, all year, can be so exhausting. Well, the, the other job I really like, I'm a correspondent on Real Sports with Brian Gumbel on HBO. And that's, that's another one of my favorite things. Um, because, you know, it's a monthly hour-long show. Uh, and each segment, each story is about, you know, 14, 15 minutes long without commercials. So they're, the stories we get to tell are layered and textured. And, you know, I've, it's taken me around the world covering, covering stories for that, covering athletes, all kinds of athletes. Um, so I do like the change up, I must say. I like downshifting, upshifting, going from sport to sport. I still like to travel. I mean, I still, I still have an awful lot of energy. As long as as I get to bed before the clock hits double digits, I'm usually okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not a night owl. Reasonable. That's a reasonable hour. <laughs> yeah. How did you, at this point, you're, you're known as a broadcaster, you're known as a TV presence, commentator, analyst, everything. How did you make the switch from player to this career that you're all in? I was, this is, I, it was very fortunate and kind of lucky. Um, the year I had to quit playing, I had, I was riding on rims. My knees were terrible. Um, but I was at the year-end championships at Madison Square Garden just watching. Just And uh, I I ended up doing a match late in the night. They had run out of guests. You know, this is the thing where, like, they were interviewing Billie Jean King and Virginia Wade. I mean, you know, and it was the last match of the night. Tracy Austin's playing Yvonne Gulligan. And there was no one else to interview. And somebody from the Women's Tennis Association said, oh, you know, why don't you guys interview Carrillo? You know, she's around. And I started explaining to them why it's going to be a great match and why I thought that Tracy Austin was going to beat him. And I was getting all, you know, just motoring around and talking and talking. So they decided that Madison Square Garden Network to let me call the match as well with them. I didn't even have headsets, Nina. They just put a microphone, like a Larry King microphone in front of me. And I didn't know, all I did was talk about this match. And I was totally into it. And as luck would have it that year... Uh, 1980, I played my last match at Wimbledon, lost first round, had no idea what I was going to, I was going to teach and I was figuring I'd go back to school, go to college, which I've still never quite gotten to. My mother's still waiting for me to go to college. It's not looking good, mom. Anyway, somebody had heard me, somebody on USA Network, a guy named Mark Stolberger, heard me that night at the garden calling this match. And he asked me if I was around. USA Network was going to start showing some a couple of women's matches a year. Would I be interested? And I was obviously madly available. I said, yeah, sure. So in the beginning for USA Network, I was only covering women's tennis. And it was just a couple of times a year. I went back to teaching, coaching. I'd worked for the late great Harry Hauptman. In between knee operations, I'd done a lot of coaching. So I was going back to that. And I got this offer to do some TV some women's tennis, and then it became men's tennis, and then it became other sports. I mean, I just kept going. I was, I love sports. I'm, and I'm curious by nature. I want to know how things work. I, and so that's, it's just started from that one 
match I called late one night at Madison Square Garden. I was lucky. That's an incredible way to go about it. And a great start. <laughs> a great, strong start. It, it was, yeah, it's so funny because so many people, I think, want to get into broadcasting, into this side of it. And I don't get them anymore, but I used to get a lot of letters um, from kids in college, you know, from famous broadcasting schools like Syracuse. And they would write, Dear Ms. Carrillo, blah, 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 I want your job. And I'm a senior uh, at Syracuse and I'm majoring in communications. I'm minoring in English. I do a radio show, blah, blah, but my favorite sport is tennis. How do I, you know, how do I get into it? And I said, all right, first, first win Wimbledon. Okay. And then, because <laughs> so often uh, the people who get to have our jobs are champions, past champions. I mean, I, I, I feel lucky that I'm one of the very few people who talk about this sport on TV who, who's not that. I, my identity didn't, didn't come from there, you know. Um, I didn't play long and I didn't play terribly well. But I've, but I've hung around. You were ranked high. You were 31. I was ranked you in the 30s. won a 30s. Mixed Grand Slam title. Champion. That's a champion. Yes. But I mean, I, I, I was never going to be that good. And now I, I share the air with Jim Courier and Lindsay Davenport and Martina Navratilova and John McEnroe. I, you know, I mean, so I'm, I'm, I can, and I'm, I consider myself lucky. And, and also I work hard. I mean, I really enjoy this stuff. I think that's pretty obvious. Do, <laughs> do you think that there's any, when you talk to these kids, these college kids, or anyone that asks you, like, how do I get into this? You really think that the the majority have to be former top 10 Grand Slam champs? No, but it certainly Am does. Am I screwed, Mary? <laughs> no, no, carry on. Carry on, Nina. I'm just saying a, an awful lot of the time, the people you see on the air uh, have a have a, a name value to them, right? I mean, a lot of a lot of them are, are like that. But I certainly, I kind of slid in through the kitchen window, you know. So no, I think there's and and by the way, there are so many different platforms now. There are so many different ways that you can go about covering tennis that it just wasn't available back in my day. Honestly, when I first started doing this, I was often the only woman on, on the crew. You know, I was, and I was willing to do anything for any amount of money. I mean, I was, I was willing to hose down the trucks at the end of the day because I just wanted to, I was, I liked it. And in fact, at the U.S. Open, uh, in between the operations, I would work for the USTA here. I wanted to be in the media center. I love writing. I love writers. And I wanted to see how they worked. And I, so I had a job for one or two years here. I was called a media liaison and all that, it sounded great. You know, if I had to, if I had to make a, a business card for it, basically I took them off the court and brought them to the press room and then took them back to the locker room. That was my job. But the reason I wanted to is because I wanted to watch how, how these people go about storytelling. And, and I enjoyed that. So that's, I mean, I, again, I, we gorillas seem to think we have something to say. My father is an artist. My brother's a novelist. My sister's an actor. My, my son is an actor. I mean, we, we, we seem to think uh, we have a lot to give. <laughs> we could be wrong. I don't think you're wrong. We raise our hands a lot. We, you know, so, so that's really another, another way I really got into this. I did, just wanted to be around. Did you have anyone helping coach you or show you the ways or, or the ropes maybe when you were starting? Or did you take any lessons on voice coaches? Because your voice and all that is, is obviously world famous. But did it start off that way where you were like smooth? I've always had a deep voice. <laughs> I've, I've sounded like this for a long, a long time. And I never had, 
technical voice coaching. But again, my early producers and directors were very helpful. I mean, I, I had to learn how to hold a microphone. The first time, I'll, I'll never forget, I, they wanted me to run down and do an on-court interview. And so I had my earpiece, my IFB in, and my producer is telling me, okay, go in the middle of the court. And I didn't know where he was. I was looking around in the stadium for my producer. He was in a truck about a quarter of a mile away. I mean, I was really, I really didn't know what I was doing, but I learned quickly. And I, it meant a lot for me that I, I did a professional job. So I, and, and again, people, you know, if you sit next to somebody after a while, you start to learn how to, how to lay out and how to get to a commercial cleanly, how to not start a long involved story about somebody's gene pool if it's break point, because you're not going to have time. And you learn to, if, if you learn to know how quickly someone plays, I had to call Steffi Groff matches and she played so quickly in between points, she really couldn't, all you could give was a score. You know, and here's she. Here's Groff would be hitting these remarkable forehands, her feet flying out of her shoes. You know, these huge winners, and we didn't even have time for replay. So after a while, you get to you get to understand the rhythms of the sport you're covering, and you get to, you know, if you really get into it, it's a lot of fun. I'm Alex Rodriguez, and I'm Jason Kelly from Bloomberg. This is the deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as uh, simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Hello, everyone. You're listening to the Tennis.com podcast with special guest Mary Carrillo. She's an award-winning sports broadcaster that has covered everything from dog shows to ice skating at the Olympics to Grand Slam finals. Let's get back to Mary Carrillo. Did you get hung up on any mistakes you made early on or little things that kind of stick in your head where you're just thinking, oh, no, uh, or not really? No, no, I think – I had a few in the Bronx. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, but that's – that. Well, like like what? What what kind of stuff happened to you? That- well, I, I wasn't – uh, prepared for one of the interviews on on court. I didn't know the player that well, and when yeah. I went out there, I had my plan of what I was going to ask her, and she kind of shortchanged me. And I, <laughs> I didn't panic, but there was a moment where I realized I kept saying kind of the same few words. I kept saying, "Well, how do you feel?" And I felt myself saying the same yes. sentence, and I was just like, "Nina, move on from the same words." And you and you you get to understand very quickly that the best questions are short. Yeah, because if you ask a long question, you tend to get a very short answer. You know, you learn how not to ask yes and no questions. Um, yeah, all that stuff. I was doing a match with uh, Martina Navratilova uh, for HBO when HBO had the Wimbledon coverage for, for the, I got to do that for four years. And for some reason I was way off my game and I, at a, at, and I just, I kept misstating things, misnaming things. And I said, on the air, I still do it now. I'll say, oh God, Martina, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm hitting a lot of unforced errors. And Martina very kindly said, well, you're hitting some winners too. <laughs> it's kind of that's kind of what you have to do. You have to just keep, just keep going and figure out. I, there's also verbal tics that a lot of people, including me, have. You know, there's a there's a joke at Tennis Channel when something big happens. I, I don't get terribly articulate, but I'll say, "Oh boy!" So like, there's a, a drinking joke going on in in the Tennis tra- Channel truck. Oh, there we go again. Everybody take a shot. You know. So there's some matches. If I go five sets and it's a great match. You know, that's that would be a lot of liquor if they were actually consuming it 
down in the trucks. Which they might be. <laughs> how did you get, I, I mean, so tennis comes to you quite naturally because you played, but how did you get to become an expert on things like winter sports and even the dog shows, you know, kind of talking about something that you're not as familiar with seems a bit scary to me. Well, it, it, it's a bit daunting, but I'm not the expert. In, the only sport I am at all fluent in is tennis. And I don't pretend to be anything else in any other sport. Although I must say, I'm pretty good on dogs. I, I know my groups. I know my breeds. <laughs> I'm pretty good on that only because I've, I've always had dogs and I love them very much. But it's not my role to be an expert when I'm covering figure skating or, you know, gym, I've covered gymnastics. I've covered skiing. You know, I've, I mean, I've, that, that's the, I'm, I'm supposed to be setting up the, the expert next to me or, or telling a story. So, and again, if you're at all curious, if you like sports, I mean, I like excellence in all forms, not just sports. It could be, it could be music. It could be writing. I mean, if somebody is great at something, I want to, I want to be around that. How much of the job is you on the fly on TV reacting and commentating, setting people up and how much of it is research and prepping and note taking and things behind the scenes that people might not see? Well, I'm a nerd. <laughs> I, I, if I don't feel like I'm prepared for something, I, that makes me very jumpy. And what, I mean, I'm sure you know all the same stuff as me. Like you prepare for a match that you think is going to happen, and then something else happens. And 90% of what you've prepared, you never even use because it's not a good match, or somebody gets hurt, or somebody's choking, or and then you have to go somewhere else. Sometimes the best thing you can do if a match has, there's no tension left in a match, you, you start telling stories, you know? I mean, so you have to be, I think, agile and adept enough to follow the rhythms of the match. And, you know, sometimes, I mean, I've, I've listened to calls of matches that were better than the match itself. You know, that happens. And sometimes, and the better a match is, the less you have to talk anyway. You just hope you've got a, a terrific director who's cutting cameras for you, you know. Um, so that stuff happens too. So I think if you are cognizant, if you're, if you're you know, alert to the rhythms of a match and you're prepared... You're in pretty good shape. Do you ever get any negative feedback that gets you down and gets stuck with you? Do you kind of let these things go? Because I feel like you're not on social media as not much as one bit. I'm not one at bit at all. <laughs> I, I just avoid it because I I need to. There are people whose uh, whose judgment I really respect and trust, and I I I'm not on. I mean, I'm not on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, nothing. I mean, I I look for that stuff. I think it's a remarkable. It's a remarkable thing to have, you know, it's great tools to have, but I, no, I, I don't, I don't want to do that. It, it's, it just seems to me like I'd be spending way too much time caring about what strangers think and, and taking it to heart. I mean, and, and the thing is, and I don't, I don't want to hear good stuff about myself either, because if you react well to the good stuff, you'll react badly to the bad stuff. If you trust what everybody is thinking and saying and 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 barking about you, it cuts both ways, right? So I just try to stay away from all that and and try to do as as well as I can. And you're doing well because it doesn't seem like anyone's mad at you about anything ever. Uh, ever I'm sure that's not true. I have been, you know, believe me, I have been in plenty of dog houses, players' dog houses, agents' dog houses. I mean, I've 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 done my time, and and what you hope for. And again, I've been doing this for 40 years now or something. What you hope for is that you stay consistent and you develop a reputation for being fair-minded, you know, 
Um, and that's what you lean up against when things get rough. A lot of this is about relationships. I've, I've picked that up on that in the past couple of years that 90% of this job is who you know and how you relate with other people, right? Do you get that sense? I, I think it really helps when, when yeah, like I, I like hanging around. As I said, even when I was a player, I liked hanging around the press. I liked, when I was a little kid, I'd go to Forest Hills when, it was, when the U.S. Open was held there. Um, there was a guy named Jim Roach, who was the sports editor of the New York Times, and he, the New York Times had a box. So anytime there was an empty seat, there I was. And I would be running around. The, I mean, I would go from the first match to the last, and then I'd pick up the newspapers, the dailies, the next day, the New York Post, the Daily News, and I'm thinking, why'd they write about that match? That match stunk. Why weren't they out watching this match? Like, <laughs> So, I mean, I always wanted to... I, I always wanted to see how people, you know, covered stuff and, and what, what was important. And uh, so I think I still do that, you know. Uh, and there's a, there's a real joy to that. So, uh, yes, the relationships are important. If you hang around, hanging around is a big part of this, you know. Watching, watching practices, listening to press, asking questions in the press conference, getting to know, you know, being yelled at by an agent, um, all that stuff, being around, being a, a sort of available to the tennis and, or any sport and, and the moment hanging around, you just pick up stuff, you know, Oh, look at that. She's, why is she limping as she's leaving the court? You know, why is she icing? Why is that guy yelling at his father? And it's got like that stuff, all that stuff counts. At this point, when you look back and you're looking at what you're doing, how much of it do you think people in broadcast want to be on camera and like glammed up and celebrities? And how much of it is, hey, I want to tell these stories differently than we've been telling them? Because tennis arguably can just be about matches and forehands and backhands, but you seem to want to look at it as behind the scenes, in depth, things told a little bit differently, culture. You did the Mary Inn on Tennis Channel. You're kind of a bit of a, a all around instead of just forehand, backhand, coach, player. Well, you know what, Nina, and a big part of that is because so many tennis players, men and women, aren't from this country. So I feel like if you're a casual fan, you might not know the backstory of Novak Djokovic. You might not know what you know some of these players have been through. There are so many European players. Uh, Russian players, South American players. I feel like, okay, you've got to, I've got to, I've got to explain to you why maybe you should cheer for this person or why Daniel Medvedev can be booable. Uh, you know, like I, you know, you kind of, I kind of feel like that's a, a big part of the job is just uh, to engage the viewer, you know, and, and make them care one way or another about how the match is played and, and who wins it or loses it, and and why that's important. I mean, it's more than just, you know, the measure of the match. Sometimes the more interesting thing is how these people got here in the first place, and what they, what they've been able to get past. And and oh man, she's been off the tour for almost two years, and that's why you may not know who she is. You know, that's the kind of stuff. I the glam stuff. Uh, you can, I, I I drive the hair and makeup people nuts because I do drive-bys. I'll say, all right, you got four minutes, you know, and they'll do like mascara on one eye and I'm running to a studio. Like I, that's not the part that really gets me going. Um, not that into, I, there are, we, they show celebrities in the stands while we're, while we're taping this at the U S open. I don't know who half of them are. Um, I mean, I just, I, I'm not into that part of it. 
I like athletes. I like the athletic heart in any sport. I like watching, you know, people at the peak of their physical powers or diminished powers or I like whatever they, whoever these athletes are, I know what it takes uh, for them to be out there putting it on the line. They're my favorite people in the whole stadium are the, are the, the ones on the court. So if you've ever been starstruck, it was probably with an athlete, safe to say? Or never? I, I, this is a, a crazy story. The first time I can say I was ever starstruck, I was on my way to my first round match at my first ever Wimbledon in 1977. And they, I was out on court 427. You were you know. there. You were I, there. Was, I was in the show, but I mean, I was running to my match and it was packed. You know how crazy it gets at Wimbledon when you're trying to negotiate those the outer courts and it's packed. And I was running. I was afraid that I was going to be defaulted because I was stuck in this crowd. And as I was running to my court... The late, great Charles Schultz, the guy who created the Peanuts comics, was going the other way. And I had to stop and tell him how magnificent a person and and guy I thought he was and how much I loved him. So here I am at the risk of defaulting myself out of out of my first ever match at Wimbledon. I stopped and shook his hand. And then I got to know him because he was a friend of Rosie Casals and Billie Jean's. And I got to play on his tennis court. That, I think, is the most starstruck I've ever been. And it almost cost me my first Wimbledon. It's a great story, though. <laughs> and it has the advantage of being true. Yes. That's good, too. That's important. <laughs> it's an important part of this. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hey listeners, Irina here. Today we have Mary Carrillo on the Tennis.com podcast. She is one of the biggest names and one of the biggest legends in sports broadcasting. Stay listening. Do you think that tennis is doing a good job of covering these players? Do you think that we're missing something? I mean, I think we're, again, I work for Tennis Channel. It's, we're 24-7. We are on. I think coming into this year's U.S. Open, there have only been five days in 2019 that we weren't showing live tennis. Five days. So, I mean, I feel like, I think, feel like we do a pretty snappy job. Um, And again, there's so many social platforms now. There are so many ways to, to follow tennis. Yeah, I think in general, I think in general, we are doing a good job. Does it ever bug you when, or does it ever hit you a little bit the wrong way when something like Medvedev getting booed, Nick Kyrgios having another bit of dramatic moments kind of <laughs> takes over the stage and people miss out on some of the other people that might be doing a bit more of a, you know, concrete good job. Uh, right. Um, then getting attention for things that are a little bit wild. Or is it all fair game? I will tell you that my mother, my sainted mother, who turns 89 years old this year, loves Nick Kyrgios. And she thinks I'm too hard on him. And my son's favorite player has become Daniil Medvedev. <laughs> so I understand why, you know, showboating attracts people. Uh, and I would like to say just young people like my kid. But again, my mom is a sucker for Nick Kyrgios. Um, so look, the I get it. You know what I mean? And I don't, I often don't condone either Kyrgios or Daniil Medvedev, but I get it. And I got to tell you, I, I got, uh, when it, uh, Anthony came out, my boy came out 
to watch. Uh, Kyrgios was over on the grandstand, and it was a not-before-five match. And my kid and his girlfriend and a friend of theirs, I said, I'm warning you, get there. It was like 3.30 in the afternoon. I said, you might want to start making your way over there because it will be packed. Yeah, I was there. Oh, you were there. <laughs> and I got there in the middle of the set, second set for Allison Risk's match because she was before. That's exactly and right. And it was already standing room only. That's and, and standing among them was my son. That's so amazing. There you go. Couldn't yeah. get a seat. <laughs> Could not get a seat. So what do you do with that? I mean, yeah, I I get it. It's all you know. Uh, but then when you have somebody who is not getting the recognition he or she deserves, that's when you want to. That's when you really want to explain to people who they are. There's been so many storylines, exactly. Like, there's so many things that get buried in players that have made quarterfinals at the U.S. Open that we may have missed. But then there was also one thing that we all went crazy for, and it was Coco Goff. Yes. You know, I feel like the hype around her is insane, but maybe a little bit validated. But as media, I feel like we really jump and we go crazy over something like that. How do you feel about the age eligibility thing? Where do you land on that? I think the rule makes sense. I mm. think I think it's good that it's there, and I think changing it would be a bit, bit insane. What do you think? It's very interesting. I like the age eligibility rule myself, but I work alongside Lindsay Davenport, who does not like it, never liked it, even when it was instituted, and she was she was still among those young players. And I think Lindsay, for Lindsay, except if Coco gets a wild card into the Australian Open, Lindsay's point is Coco's got nowhere to play until March of next year, and that's a long, that's a long time sitting on the shelf. I like Lindsay's idea that. Uh, again, Coco may be an outlier, but maybe you can take into account whether somebody's ranking dictates how many more tournaments they may be allowed to play. I think that kind of a solution might be might be a smart one. But I like, in general, I like the age eligibility rule. I think it makes sense, though. I maybe think it makes sense. You hit top 150, you get two extra tournaments. That's that's exactly right, and that that sounds like that could be uh, negotiated. That'll be interesting to see. Yeah, I just I just always have a minute where I'm we're covering her on all of our websites and on social and videos and interviews, and I'm just like, oh my god, this kid is 15, and we're creating this buzz. Like we're responsible for this, so exactly. she for being great, but so are we. And I I know, and you're part of the machinery of it. And and uh, yeah, I tend to hit the brakes on on that before it gets too much. Honestly, Nina, the the Osaka Coco moment at the net when you know. Coco was only able to win a couple of games from the defending champion. What what Naomi Osaka did to me was more memorable than anything, that she understood that moment and that she didn't want the 15-year-old to walk off the court feeling defeated and sad. Um, I thought that was a beautiful thing from Naomi. That, to me, meant more than than anything in that story. Mary Jo Fernandez was on court with them, no. and I bet she was thinking – wow, this is going to be one of those moments that I never forget. Have you had a moment like that with an interview or a live situation where things were like, can't believe that just happened? Yes. I, I Again, I, I've, um, uh, for a long while, um, for CBS, I did the on-court interviews at the end of the, at the end of this tournament. Um, and so I've had, I've had some pretty special moments with the champions of the U.S. Open. Um, and I do the, the on-court interview for NBC at the French Open. And, uh, I'll give you an example of that when uh, Muguruza won, the, won Roland Garros a couple of years ago. She was so excited, and obviously she's Venezuelan, but she feels more Spanish than anything. And as she, as she, we were we were in a commercial, we were waiting to to come to her, and she had she wrapped the trophy around her, you know, 
And she just said, I cannot believe Rafa has won this nine times. He's gone on to win 12 now, but she just could not believe it. She knew what it took for her to win one. And she was just thinking, wait a minute. How does this guy, how does he do this year after year? So there are, there are kind of sweet, memorable moments like that that I've been on the, that I've been able to, to have that, that kind of linger. There's a lot of times where you're in these moments with players that are almost private moments, that are almost, I don't know, their moments. Do you ever feel awkward being there? Like, hey, got my I, microphone, ready to go. I did a, a U.S. Open final um, on-court interview with Vera Zvonareva, who played in, like, she got smoked. This is years ago. She got to the final here, and the moment caught up to her. I think, I'm trying to, I think Kleisters may have beaten her. Uh, and she felt awful. She And she was, she's emotional anyway, as you know. And so she was sort of burying her head in a towel. And now they're trying to get her going. They're trying to, you know, and I had to interview her because she was a runner up. And, and she couldn't really collect herself. So I tried to, and I just said to her, she was next to me. And I said, uh, I was looking out at the, the grandness of this arena. And I said, boy, this is a big place. This is kind of scary, you know, and then she smiled and then she was able to say a few words. But yeah, I mean, sometimes, sometimes there's, you know, they're, they're beyond words, these people, when you're trying to interview them. And for me, I don't, that's when I let them go, especially they're trying to speak and express themselves in a third or fourth language. I mean, I don't want to put them through that. I mean, everyone, all you got to do is look at them to know how they're feeling, you know, or what they could be feeling and so I think a lot of that is is a feel thing. There's two sides, though. There's a side where you're asking questions and they give you a very structured, boring answer. And then there's a side where you're asking something that maybe you shouldn't because they're in an emotional situation. Seems like a lot of navigations of trying to get, you know, what are you, what are you trying to accomplish when you ask them these things? You're trying to get the most out of them without it being too much. And you've got a producer in your ear saying, ask her about what happened last year. <laughs> so, a lot of it is somebody so, telling you to say, right? A lot of, well, there are certainly some uh, some suggestions that are coming through. And, and sometimes I don't take them. And then I have to have a conversation after the match. You know, why didn't you ask her that? Why didn't you ask? And then I've got to try to defend myself. That's happened plenty of times, plenty of times. Um, but again, it's it's sometimes you just feel too much empathy for them to to stick it to them. And sometimes you do have to ask the hard question. If there's some big moment in a match that you're, you know, that causes drama or whatever, it's, you can't ignore that. Some of that stuff is unignorable, you know, but um, yeah, you just got to have a feel for the wheel, I think. And I, I've gotten it wrong, I'm sure plenty of times, but it's not about, to my mind, I, I, when, when, people stick a microphone in an athlete's face and they want to make sure that their question is better than any answer they could possibly get. That stuff really aggravates me. I'm like, come on, buddy, get out of here. Let them go. Right. Cause you're trying to ask the question to lay them up. You're not, it's not about you. Exactly. Exactly. That's a tough one though. Cause I feel like people get on camera and get behind a microphone and they want to have their moment and be the best at the, at the questions yes. when it's actually about the player and their answer and opening that door. Exactly. I find that very annoying. <laughs> sounds like maybe you do too <laughs> <laughs> sounds like maybe i do it depends i feel like there's is there certain people that you look up to and you think you know what that person's doing a killer job and that person's telling the stories that i want to hear is there someone that you look up to because i think people look up to you a lot uh yeah i mean look i again i'm i'm lucky that um i i have had the chance to work with a lot of good people i worked for many years he's retired now but 
I got to sit next to Bob Costas for a whole bunch of Olympics, and I think he is a terrific. He he the interviews he asks they're very he has very good questions. They're very smart. They're structured. He listens carefully enough to follow up well. I learned a lot from Bob Costas. So he's probably of everyone in that position that I've ever worked with. He is the one I probably admire most. And then, do you think that we need more women covering the sports? Because there's 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 more. Yeah, we're slowly. getting there. We're getting there. Um, not only do I think it would be nice for more women to be involved, but I think it would be nice for more women's sports to be aired, for more inches given in newspapers. I mean, <laughs> we've been fighting that fight for a long time. And, you know, all I hear time and again is, oh, market forces dictate, you know, the difference between what women, what women get and what men get. But if you don't cover them, how are you supposed to, how, how are you supposed to gauge how many people want to know about stuff. So the, that, look, I'm, I'm 62 years old, Nina. I've, I've been around a long time. It's a lot better than it used to be, and it needs to get a lot better than it is. <laughs> but there's been moves. So are, what are you excited about that you're seeing that's improving, that you're excited to see happen? Is there anything that you're amped up about things going? In, in terms of media coverage? In terms of media coverage, in terms of, I guess, the tennis as well, in terms of players like Coco Goff, things that we need to be looking out for. I think we're doing better. I do. I, I think, um, again, uh, there are so many platforms. There are so many people like me and like you and uh, a lot, plenty of women are, are covering it. Plenty of women are making their names in sports. You know, Billie Jean King always said that until and unless team sports really get acknowledged, women's team sports, only then will we have made it. And I, I don't know about you, but I love, I mean, I, I love the WNBA. Uh, I love women's hockey. I go crazy at the Winter Olympics for, for the American women because, and, and the Canadian women. I mean, I've gotten to know some of them as well. I mean, women's basketball is just insane. I love women's figure skating. Women's gymnastics, the American women, the last bunch of Olympics, they've just been ruling. So it's out there and it's getting better. And I think it's getting more acknowledged that. And the, the Olympics. And the Olympics. Tokyo. You're Tokyo. going. I'll be all over it. I've already been. I've already shot uh, three features. What? Uh, I, was already th I was already in Tokyo, Osaka, and Kyoto. Uh, oh, yes. Coming what? coming to an Olympics near you on NBC next summer, I've already learned how to become a sumo wrestler, a samurai warrior. And I was also there um, this spring for Cherry Blossom Time in Kyoto, which was one of the prettiest. I've been to Kyoto before, but never during Cherry Blossom season, which only lasts a couple of days. I'm, I'm lucky. I've, uh, and I'm very much looking forward to to Tokyo. That's the coolest thing. You get to already be part of it. You're going to be all over that event. And some people don't ever get to go to Olympic Games and you're going this to This will be my 15th. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I told you, I'm elderly. Is it more than tennis? Yeah. You're going to be doing yeah, more than tennis. I, I've, I'm, I, I'll be covering, I mean, I'm doing features. Uh, the first eight days is tennis. Um, and so obviously I'm looking forward to that and the reception that Naomi Osaka is going to get. And whether Roger Federer, who's got a huge Japanese clothing contract, what he's going to be a big deal there. It'll likely be the final Olympics for the Williams sisters. Venus is hoping to get there for, for Rafa, for Roger, for, I mean, it's going to be tennis. I think is going to be a big deal in Tokyo uh, at the Olympic games next summer. Uh, but I also cover, I already know I'm covering 
open water marathon swimming. I did it in Rio. Uh, and it is, it's just, you try to cover that. There's a, there's a, they start on the beach. Nope. There's no, they're in swim trunks. So, and I don't know who these people are, these crazy people. And they jump into the ocean and there's no lanes. You try to keep track of that. What are you going to say? What do you say? (laughs) You're like, swim, don't drown. And it takes a couple of hours. So we don't stay with it. You know, we come back in and out and, and cover the end. And then, and I, thank God I work, I, I did it in Rio with Rowdy Gaines and I'll do it with him again in Tokyo. It is one of the most hilarious, you try to, you try to research that event. And, and then, so, and you show that in the Rio, you know, there was all pollution in the water. There were a lot of stories that you had to tell about that. And then all of a sudden there's this mad rush you have to you have to swim up to this electronic thing and and slap your hand against it and that's how you get electrically and all of a sudden rowdy Gaines is going crazy and we've in the last two minutes because we have people spotters telling us who's who and you can't tell they're in the ocean there's they, they all look exactly the i mean it is i have never covered an event that confused me more and i've covered a lot of sports and it was one of the greatest experiences. Of my oh, so at the end of the whole thing, we're both like looking at each other and heaving, and I'm there like, what the, what the hell just happened? And then the next day we did like it was the first, it was the men's and the women's. We had to do it all over again, and somehow the producer had said, hey, Carilla, good job. You'll do it again in Tokyo. I'm there like, what did I just do here in real? That you- stuff's fun. It sounds fun. It sounds confusing. I, do you ever say no? Or you're like, I'm not doing no. that. No. Well, it's very rare that I'll turn something down. I, I, I And that's what I, uh, the, the thing I tell people trying to get into this business more than anything, if I'm giving a speech or if somebody is asking me, you know, what I said, just say yes. Say yes. If you can't do it, they'll tap you on the shoulder and get, get you gone. But just say yes. Experience it and work hard and be curious and do your thing. Say Yes. Uh, Mary, how would you like to cover the downhill? Yes. Um, what do you know? Yes. Do you speak Mandarin? Of course I do. <laughs> Say it and do it. And, and, and if you're, you know, if they like you, they'll probably let you hang around. Do you ever get nervous? Uh, I, again, I only get nervous if I don't feel like I've done my homework. And if, but if I feel prepared and I've done everything I can do, yeah, deal me in. I'll cover, I'll co- cover open water marathon swimming. Why not? Who better than me? <laughs> oh my God. Say yes. This say, is, I mean, this is the say, perfect place to end. Say yes, Nina Pantic. Just continue oh, to oh, say oh. yes. I mean, I think that's a perfect way to end this podcast. All right. It was a I pleasure mean, sitting really, next to you. I've really appreciated your time. Pleasure. And you've given us a lot of lessons and things to think about, I think. Definitely me. That's all that matters here is what I think. So I think it's great. <laughs> I'll see you again soon. Yeah. All right, guys, that was Mary Carrillo, an awesome episode of interview with her. And now Irina and I are going to look back a little bit and rehash and react to some of the bigger points that we talked about because Irina wasn't actually able to make it for the interview due to scheduling conflicts. So we're going to rehash a few things. Mary Carrillo, I mean, she is such a big deal in the tennis world, in the commentating world. She does dog shows. She does softball. She does open swimming marathon. To be able to do so many different sports and have so many different gateways to have that platform is truly unbelievable. So the fact that she had that many people, I remember you called me and you were like, she honestly had about eight to 10 different people stop her after her match to ask her questions and to have a few minutes of her time. I mean, she's a big deal. 
It was one of the most interesting experiences I've had at the U.S. Open was when I met up with her at first because a bunch of people literally flocked to her and it was as if she was one of the players. They were like so excited to see her and they wanted to get three to five minutes with her to just chat and for interview stories, obviously. But it was kind of those things where I noticed like, hey, this woman is in high demand. I need to get this done. And it was a great experience for me because I am kind of a big fan of hers. Um, We asked her about who she's starstruck by. And kind of the reason I asked her that was because I'm a little bit starstruck by her in the coolest, coolest way possible. The fact that she's starstruck by the Peanuts cartoonist Charles Schultz was fun. I don't know who I'd pick. Arena, who would you pick? To be honest, anytime I see Federer, I'm just kind of like goo goo gaga, like anytime. I literally see him every single tournament and it's every time I'll be in mid-conversation with probably someone really cool as well and I just see him and it's like time has to stop whatever you're doing you have to stop and acknowledge that it's Federer that is walking by you walking past you even just speaking like I remember once he was sitting and eating near my table and I I just had to keep it together just I mean it was it was difficult but um yeah no I'm just a huge fan of his and no matter what even I, I've actually talked to him before I I Actually, this is a very funny story. We were in the waiting room. We were in the doctor's office and I believe he was with his two kids and I looked him straight in the face and I said, I was like, um, I think you should have two more kids. And he asked the little boys what they thought and they didn't respond. He's like, yeah, that's what I thought too. And that was that. So that's been my only real moment with Federer and I totally blew it. I mean, I probably shouldn't have said anything in the first place, but um, yeah, I mean, he's... That's that's who I'm starstruck with. But I still remember when you wrote me and you were telling me like, oh, my gosh, Mary Carrill is going to give us her time. Like, it's a big deal. I know she works Tennis Channel and so do we. But it just it's a different kind of feeling. I think Roger Federer definitely has that when you he walks into a room and the atmosphere changes and you can sense that someone big is in there. And Mary Carrillo kind of has that judging from that press room experience where people were flocking to her. You kind of you get this kind of level of attraction. You know, maybe she doesn't want to call it fame. That's fine. She has this way of relating to anyone. You know, she kind of comes off as young and vibrant and loud and fun. And you want to hang out and you want to talk about stuff. And we talked about a bunch of stuff. And one that stands out to me is definitely the age rule. Because when you were playing and I was playing, the rule was around. And I know we thought about it here and there in terms of scheduling, for sure, because it would have been like 15, 16, 17. But the large part didn't really affect us. Coco Goff is being massively affected because she can only play 14 tournaments. She's 15. And she only has... Five left, if I'm doing my math correctly. So until March, she can only play five events, which, I don't know, good and bad? Uh, I think, you know, you have the pros, you have the cons. Um, I think it's good because you don't want to burn players like her out. I mean, she's 15. You see some stories of back in the day when you had 15-year-old players playing like 25 to 30 tournaments a week. And sure enough, they were either injured or just completely burnt out a couple years later. The cons here are someone like Coco Golf. She has this opportunity to make a jump. She's 106 in the world, I believe. And she has this opportunity. There's a lot of fall tournaments coming up in the U.S. where she can go and make a run and end up being top 50 in the world. Who knows? Maybe she might get a couple of wild cards into some Asian tournaments. I mean, she, she, made, she got a huge fan base from two huge tournaments so she's a big name the fact that she can't go and compete somewhere like asia where she can both get 
a lot of money and a lot of points to make that big push going into the Australian swing. It is really unfortunate, but you have to see the bigger picture. You have to see the longevity of the sport. They do not want to cripple these young junior tournament players. I, it's, it's really tough to kind of decide, okay, this is the absolute rule. This is this. I, I think she's the exception to the rule. Let me say that. I think you and, and Mary both came up with this idea. If you're top 150, you get an additional couple tournaments. And I think that would be a great rule. I think because of Coco, it might be implemented. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if we see some changes in the next couple of years. I looked into it, though. It already kind of exists. So as a 15-year-old, you can play 10 events and you get four extra depending on performance. So I think in her case, they want to push for more. And we mentioned Federer, and he also was in support of maybe adjusting the rules for someone like Coco Goff, who's gotten to a different kind of level you don't expect for a 15-year-old. So both Mary and Roger are in agreement there, and I think so are we. I think it just... Sometimes case by case might might warrant it. Sometimes it won't. I don't think these rules are really up to us, but I think uh, everyone cannot wait to see her play again. That's for sure. Yeah, I mean, a lot of times the rules are implemented for the bigger picture, but uh, rules are also there. They're meant to be broken. So I think that Coco Goff is a rule breaker in a sense. And she can't say yes to all opportunities because of this rule. And Mary Carrillo told us that we have to say yes to everything. And that was the uh, best piece of advice we've gotten, I think. You know, it's funny when you guys, when she said that, it kind of resonated with me. And I thought, I was like, that is so true. It's so easy nowadays to just say no, to be like, I'm too busy. I'm too tired. I'm not going to be able to make it. But, you know, that spontaneity and that vibrant just yes to everything I think that's what made what that's what's made her so successful it has it has okay so we're going to end on that note here on the tennis.com podcast that episode was with Mary Carrillo and I've been Nina Pantic and I've been Irina Falcone thanks for listening from the tennis channel podcast network this has been the tennis.com podcast be sure to subscribe to stay caught up we're available on apple Podcasts, spotify and every major listening app as well as tennis.com slash podcasts we're your hosts, Nina Pantic and Irina Falcone. We'd like to thank our team, editor and audio designer Luke Mahoney, producers Alexa March and Sean O'Malley, and executive producers Shelby Coleman, Kyle Einhorn, and Andy Chu.